welcome. Welcome back for the first class in our spring series. It is so good to see so many returning faces and also see some new faces and names. Uh, as a reminder, if you're joining us here on Zoom, we really, really do appreciate if you can keep your camera on, if you're able, if you're comfortable, because it's so nice to see other people and to look around the room and feel like we're in uh, a pre-pandemic class to whatever extent is possible and safe. And also, if you are joining us on Zoom, please do keep yourself muted unless you are intending to share your audio um, when we are entertaining questions and uh, comments. Rabbi Silver is very good about signaling when he welcomes that engagement, and we really, really appreciate all that you do share with us. So this is the first class in the first uh, class of the spring series. Welcome. Uh, we are continuing in Genesis. This is the... Um, the Return of Jacob, uh, Becoming Israel, The Return of Jacob, uh, no copyright infringement intended, not Return of C. Jacob, um, <laughs> and we will be starting in Chapter 32 of Genesis. If you have your own beloved Fumish or Tanakh on hand, like, please feel free to dig in there and find the sources for yourself. Otherwise, I will be sharing links to Safari in the chat and sharing the text on screen for your convenience. If you're joining us on Facebook, feel free to post your questions and comments in the comment section below this video, and we will bring them over here. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello. We're glad that you're with us. So uh, <laughs> I will read the course description. Um, uh, we will have a careful study of Genesis 32 to 36. The sessions will focus on the transformation of Jacob as reflected in the descriptions of his return from exile. Particular attention will be given to Jacob's wrestling with his mysterious adversary in chapter 32, the episode of Dina in chapter 34, and the death of Rachel in chapter 35. So as usual, we will try to get through as much as possible, but these classes are always very, very rich. So sometimes um, <laughs> the schedule is a little flexible, we'll put it that way. And again, I know that many of you have had the honor of learning with Rabbi Silver for longer than I've been alive, which is incredible and wonderful. But for those who are new to our learning community, I would like to give a brief introduction to who we will be learning from, Rabbi David Silver. So Rabbi Silver is the founder and dean of Drisha Institute. Uh, for Jewish education in New York and in Israel. Um, we have a yeshiva there, which we are very proud of, a women's yeshiva. So um, Rabbi Silver received ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elfman Theological Seminary. He's a recipient of the Covenant Award for Excellence in Innovative Jewish Education, and he's the author of a Passover Haggadah, um, and for such a time as this, Biblical Reflections in the Book of Esther, and also a new book that I have here that you might not be able to see super well, Malchut uh, Adam, about Stephen Shmuel. So that's available from Corin as well. Uh, he's an acclaimed lecturer on the Bible. And that is, uh, that is all I'm going to say about that at this moment. So Rabbi Silver, without further, okay. further introduction, please take it away. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome, everyone. Looking forward to continuing our study of 
Reshit, and for those that are joining for the first time, welcome. So we'll start with chapter 32. Now, it's actually very interesting that chapter 32 begins with the verse, Vayashkem Lovan Baboker, Vayinashek Levanav, Levnotav, Vayavarach Etem, Vayelech, Vayashav Lovan Limkomo, that early in the morning, Lovan kissed his sons and daughters, and I mean his grandchildren, bade them goodbye, and Lovan went home, his journey homeward. This is chapter 32. However, this is the chapter and verse. This is the way the uh, chapter and verses break up the story. But actually, if you look at the Jewish tradition, which is reflected in the Parshiot and the Sidrot. So the Sidra, the Torah reading for that week, does not end at the end of chapter 31. It rather ends chapter 32, verse number, verse number three, which is the verse, which is verse number three, and that's the end of the Sidra. So here we have a, a, a difference between the way the Sidra breaks it up. It ends the Sidra with the verse about Jacob seeing uh, the angels that encounter him in verse number two and naming the place Machanayim. We'll get to Machanayim. So there's an interesting difference. It's always interesting to think about the differences, the different ways that the uh, story is broken up. In this particular case, the Jewish traditions, which break it up according to Sidra, according to Parsha, according to Aliyah, those are the ways that the Jewish tradition breaks up the text, as opposed to chapter and verse. And what's particularly interesting in this case is that the beginning of the Sidra uh, is also different. If you look at the beginning of, let's say, the previous Sidra, Vayetze, Vayetze Yaakov Miber Shava, that's the, way, that's the way the Sidra begins. That's actually chapter 28, verse number 10. And from 28.10 is where our Sidra begins, but the chapters are broken up differently. The chapter starts in chapter 28, verse number one. So there's a difference between the way the Sidra breaks it up, beginning and end actually, of Ayatse, deviates in both cases from chapter and verse. And um, it's interesting to look at both. Not that, you know, I'm not talking about which one makes more sense. To me, typically, our tradition makes more sense when it comes to breaking up the, uh, the Chumash. In fact, the chapter and verses, which are rather late, and the, the Jews don't really go with chapter and verse till about 200 years ago. Uh, the non-Jews, some on time in, some, somehow in, in, in medieval times, that's when chapter and verses were introduced, this particular breakup of chapter and verse. But what's interesting is, if you look at our tradition, the way the Parsha begins and the Parsha ends, so our Parsha ends with chapter 32, verse number three, Jacob, in verse number two, Yaakov continues his path. And the angels of God encounter him. So the Hebrew in verse number two is means to encounter. The word often in biblical Hebrew has a negative connotation that is to injure or to damage. 
lifgoa bis somebody in the book of Shmuel typically means to uh, to uh, kill them. Um, lifgoa can mean to entreat someone in a very serious way, kind of very strong encounter, often a violent encounter. So here we have in verse number two, Jacob is returning. He's walking on his path, loving having departed. And the reader is reminded of the way this Sidra begins in our tradition. And that is, the Sidra began in chapter 28, not verse number one, but verse number 10. And in verse number 10, so when Jacob first leaves from Beersheba, in 28, verse 10, and 28, verse 11, Jacob, here they translate, came upon, alighted. But over there in that context means he, he encounters the place in a kind of unexpected way. Because the Torah says he's, night has fallen. So he goes to sleep in the place where he happens to find himself. So the story of Jacob begins, the way the Sidra organizes it, it begins with the verse, and it ends with Jacob in each case encountering this particular place or the group of angels. And we are all reminded, of course, that in the beginning of the Sidra, when Jacob encounters the place, he goes to sleep in the next verse. And in his dream, he sees angels. He sees angels ascending and descending the staircase or the ladder, perhaps. So he, he sees in his dream groups of angels. And when he wakes up, he names that place. He names the place in which he is sleeping, Beit El, God's house. And he vows to return to Beit El. God appears to Jacob in the dream. God promises that God will protect Jacob. God will care for Jacob. God will bring him back safely. And Jacob takes a vow in the beginning of the Sidra. If you do these things for me, I will build your house. This, 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 this place where Jacob erects a pillar shall become the house of God. So Jacob takes a vow. But the Sidra begins with the encountering of angels, groups of angels, the naming of the place, and a vow. And now the Sidra ends with the angels encountering Jacob. In the beginning of the story, Jacob is the one who encounters the place and by extension, the Malachim. And here in chapter 32, verse number two, the angels of God encounter him. But we wonder about the use of the word because Vayifga, as I mentioned, often suggests something violent, almost a kind of collision or a very strong entreaty. So we wonder here, we the reader wonder, we haven't read further yet, what this might anticipate. And in fact, Jacob names the place in the very next verse, I've come to the camp of God, and he names the place Machanayim. So Machanayim is the plural of Machanet. It's a plural form. He names the place Machanayim, which means camps. And that's the end of the Sidra. And we, the reader wonders, what might this mean? So what it certainly means is that 
because his original dream was in this very special place where he sees the angels ascending and descending from a particular place, which he understands to be God's heavenly temple, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the vow was to build the earthly Jerusalem. That's for sure. But in point of fact, the encounter seeing the angels means on one level, he's coming home because God's place is found inside of, in, a, in, a, in a particular place. So as Jacob is walking on his path, continuing to walk, he realizes he's coming close, he's approaching the place from which he originally left. That's for sure. But the question is, of course, what is the camps, plural, the double camps? What might that suggest? And as we read, continue to read, we'll see that Machanayim might may carry with it certain possibilities. I will mention that the place called Machanayim does appear prominently in the book of Shmuel. As Noah mentioned, uh, I, together with, of course, Ben Sion Ovadja, he writes it. And uh, this is a book that um, we've been working on for several years. And I thank Tova Buell for supporting this entire project. Um, and just came out recently in Hebrew, very beautiful Hebrew. If you remember in the book of Shmuel, the place Machanayim is found. It's the place where when David is forced to leave Jerusalem, he goes into exile. His son has overthrown him for the moment, Avshalom. And he encounters uh, a, a speaker, one who represents the, the Benjaminites, Shimi ben Gera, who curses him in a place called Machanayim. At the end of David's life, he struck Shlomo to kill him. He cursed me on the day that I went to Machanayim. So Machanayim then means camps, and we understand it, that in that case, it means two camps. There, in fact, are two different camps. In fact, this appears in more than one place. There's the camp of David. There are two kings in Israel. There's David on one side, and there's his adversary on the other side. That's how the book of Shmuel plays with Machanayim in more than one place. So over here, we, perhaps one thing we anticipate is that there will be two camps. And as we will see shortly, there are, there are actually more than one set of two camps. But one possible possibility of two camps is there is Yaakov and potentially there's Esav on the other side. Because we all remember that when Yaakov first left home, Back in chapter 28, his mother had said to him at the end of chapter 27, you go for a few days, I will send for you and bring you back. And Rivka never sends for him and brings him back. In fact, God says to Yaakov when he's leaving, I'm going to bring you back. But we have to wonder, why didn't Rivka send for him and bring him back? She says she's going to do that. I'm going to bring you back. And she never did. I'll bring you back after your brother's wrath abates. It'll be in a very short amount of time. Yomi a few days. And she never did it. And we are puzzled as to why she didn't do it. Maybe she didn't do it because there was no opportunity. Maybe she died. Or maybe Esau's wrath did not abate after a few days. Maybe Esau is still angry. It's 20 years later, but maybe he's angry. So potentially, there could be the two camps, Yaakov and Esau, we know that Rivka was told you have two nations inside you, 
and they'll always be contending one with the other. That's one possibility for two camps. But as we'll see, the Torah suggests other possibilities as well. But the, as we finish these three verses, we're left with a question. We ask ourselves the question, what might this Machanayim anticipate? That's a good question. So now let's begin with the Sidra of Vayishlach. I'll read a few more verses and I'll stop to take comments and questions pretty soon. But let's now begin. Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim Rufanov Ele Savachiv. Let's start with this first verse. Yaakov sends, a, mal, a malach means a messenger. That's what a malach actually means. Sometimes it's a human messenger, a messenger of a human being. That's a messenger. And sometimes God sends messengers. It's also a messenger, a, 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 a malach. So malach means one thing in the biblical, he means messenger. We call them angels when it's God's messengers. And we call them maybe people when the human, human being sends them. But it's the same concept. And here, Yaakov sends Malachim. We just encountered Malachim a couple of verses earlier. So presumably what that means is that Yaakov sending Malachim is, we think, a way of Yaakov making happen the promises that he has made. Remember, he made promises. He took a vow. And God reminded Yaakov of his vow. God instructed Yaakov to go home. I'm, I'm the God to whom you made a vow. Back in Beit El, go back and fulfill your vow. So Yaakov is now returning after 20 years on the path to fulfill presumably his vow. And he sends these messengers to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And when you read this verse, you discover something that you did not know. You couldn't know it, no one knows it. And that is apparently in, in the interim, during those 20 years, Esau has moved to a, to a different country. He's sending the messengers to Seir, Sedei Edom. Esau is Edom, Esau is also Seir, Remember, the word seir is probably a play on se'ar, which is hair, right? Kuroka deret se'ar, when he's born, he's a hairy child. And he's also with a red complexion. And he also eats the red lentil soup. Esav Adom. So apparently in the interim, for whatever reason, Esav has left the country during those 20 years. So Yaakov's messengers are being sent to Esav's residence, which is Edom. However, to Yaakov's surprise, he discovers that Esau, in fact, though he may dwell in Edom, is headed towards him. And we'll get to that in a moment. Now, the truth of the matter is that the Torah, later on, not in this chapter, but in chapter 36, tells us, in fact, that Esau left the land. That's in chapter 36, which is the chapter that tells us the whole genealogy of Esau, the family of Esau. And the Torah says in chapter 36, here it's hinted at, but the Torah is explicit in chapter 36, verse number six, I'll read it to you in chapter 36, verse six. So Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, his household, cattle, livestock, property, 
everything he acquired in the land of Canaan, and he moved, he left, he left the land on account of his brother Yaakov. They had too much property to dwell together. And the land of their sojournings could not bear, could not carry both of them. And therefore, Esav dwelt in Har Seir, Esav being Edom. It's very strange. We don't exactly know when he did this. We know apparently now he's sending these messengers, Yaakov sends messengers to Edom. But the Torah says in chapter 36, he left on account of his brother Esav because the land couldn't bear both of them, which is a strange thing to say. These are two people, it's a big land. And of course, this verse that the land could not bear both of them uh, is of course parallel to a verse that appears earlier in the book of Breshit, back in chapter 13 on the split between Avraham and Lot. It's almost word for word the same verse back in chapter 13. It's the reason that Abraham and Lot split. Abraham says to Lot, let's, 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 uh, let's split. There you have it right there, chapter 13, verse 6. Thank you. They couldn't live together. They had too many possessions. And there's a fight between them. And Abraham says to Lot, separate. I don't want to fight with you. Let's separate. You go one direction, I'll go the other. You go north, I'll go south. You go south, I'll go north. Right and left is north and south and Lot and Abraham separate. So that's an interesting point over here that Esau has left, the, has left the land. He's decided to have his own land. He has his own place. He has Edom. He owns a country. So Yaakov sends his messengers to Esau. The reason he sends the messengers to Esau, we don't know, but we suspect to placate Esau. Perhaps Esau is angry. He wants to inform Esau he's come back doesn't want to fight with Esau. He knows he left under very bad terms. He knows that Esau was threatening to actually kill him. So presumably he wants to placate his brother. On the other hand, his brother lives in a different country. So the Midrashim raised the question actually, did he do a wise thing? Maybe let, let sleeping dogs lie. What are you starting up for? From the other side of it though, which I think is probably closer to the Pshat, he has no choice he actually has to try to make amends with Esau because it's not just about peaceful coexistence. Yaakov has in fact hurt Esau. Yaakov has wronged Esau, one might say, and therefore Yaakov feels the necessity to not just placate and appease his brother, but to try to make it right. And we'll see this because this is a very important point about the story. He wants to make it right on one hand, but he wants to maintain his own identity on the other. In any event, this verse number four, the first verse of Parshat Bayishlach, is interesting. New information. Esau lives in a different country. And now Yaakov gives instructions. The Torah tells us what Yaakov tells the messengers. Say this to my Lord Esau. When he's talking to the messengers, he's already using the term for Esau Adomi, my master or my Lord. Thus says your servant Jacob. So he's telling the messengers what to say. Remember to use that language. I'm the Eved, 
and he's the Adon. Tell him, I dwelt with Lavan, I have remained until now. In other words, that can be read in a variety of ways. What he's saying is, I'm back. I've been away a long time. For Echar can mean I delayed or tarried or remained. Remained is more neutral. Laacher means to be late. I've stayed until now. And perhaps the next verse explains why he stayed. So perhaps the verse number six, I have acquired cattle, ass, and sheep, male and female slaves, is the explanation as to why he stayed, which is to some extent true. He stayed an additional six years because he saw good business opportunity. And now I'm back. I have all these possessions. That's why I stayed. It's not that I forfeited my claim to the land. Maybe that's the subtext. And I'm telling you, I'm returned. And I want to win so in the hope of finding, gaining your favor. So it's pretty clear. I, I want to come back on good terms, he says. And we'll deal with that a little bit uh, later. But before we, uh, I stop to take comments and questions, let me just repeat here what, what we what I mentioned during the last set of sessions, which is a very important point about verse number five. is a very important expression. Because the word garti, ger, I was a stranger in the house of Lavan. Lagur has a particular significance in the context of the story of Yaakov. Because remember that the covenant God made with Abraham in chapter 15, the covenant of the land called the Brit Ben Habitarim, and Abraham had asked God the question, Bama means through what shall we possess it? What is our commitment? Your commitment to the covenant is giving us the land. What's our commitment? How do we merit the, the land? And God said, No, let me tell you how. Your descendants will be ger, be strangers, avadum, enslaved. Inum, abused, Inui. So there's Gerut, there's Avdut, and there's Inui. In chapter 31, if you recall, Jacob describes his own experience in the house of Lavan as Avdut and Inui. That's towards the end of chapter 31. But he didn't mention the third term. The third term of Gerut is mentioned here. Actually, the reader is waiting for Gerut. And Yaakov only describes his staying in the house of Ravan as Gerut after he leaves. Because only after he leaves, only after you've fully left, can you get a real sense of what that experience was. I was a stranger means it wasn't my place. It means it wasn't my values. That's what Yaakov is saying. So even though he talks to Ravan at some length and he argues with Ravan, and he says, you abuse me and you enslave me. But to fully comprehend that's not my place, that's only once you're not there anymore, then you have the critical distance. So that what Yaakov is saying over here, what the Torah is saying to us is Yaakov has come to understand now the nature of Lavan. That's not the way we want to be. And furthermore, the word Garti then takes on a covenantal significance, the promise of the land. So Yaakov is coming back to the, to the covenantal land. 
Yaakov sees himself as having fulfilled the terms of the covenant. But the problem is, okay, he's returned to the covenantal land and he's escaped the clutches of Ravan. But now there's another problem, potentially, which is Esav. A problem both from a practical standpoint that Esav is a dangerous person, as we'll see, very dangerous. He lives by the sword. He's a hunter. But beyond that, there's the other problem, which is Yaakov's worthiness of possessing the land. Because we're looking back at Yaakov's career so far. I'm not saying he's a villain, but on the other hand, I wouldn't give him Shlishi either. I mean, what has he actually done in his life? He manipulated the blessing. He deceived his blind father. He outsmarted Lavan. Not that he wasn't tricked and cheated by Lavan, he was, but the very way he manipulated it in Lavan-like fashion. And then he runs away, steals away in the night. So it may not make him a villain, but doesn't make him a, 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 a hero. Doesn't make him a hero either. So the question, of course, is on, on one hand, he, he, has, he has lived the covenantal life. He's endured the Gerut and the Abdut and the Inui, but the Torah, of course, raises implicitly the question as, where does Yaakov stand vis-a-vis all this? Can Yaakov, in fact, return? Apart from Esau being, from a practical standpoint, a problem, but there's a deeper question, Yaakov's worthiness to take his place alongside Abraham and Isaac. That is actually the main, the main topic of this chapter. Let me stop here for a moment. And if there are comments or questions, please speak up. Rabbi? Yes. Um, when Yaakov is coming back now, he Asim is already in a different land, but the quote you gave in Paraklam and Vav makes it sound like he didn't move until after Yaakov had come back. That's true. That's right. It's very unclear. It says he went with Neyakov Achiv. I mean, you're asking a very good question. It, it does, on, on the surface of it, sound like it's two different versions of why he left, or in fact, when he left. Um, I mean, you, one, one, one can resolve it by saying once, once he understands that Yaakov has this blessing from his father about the land, and so Asa decides, why should I compete with my brother? I can I can leave and have my own place, my own land, et cetera. I mean, it's not that you can't resolve the contradiction, but you're right. I mean, it's, and it wouldn't be the only place in Sefer Breshit where the text, different texts seem to suggest something different. I always cited that verse, I cited it for two reasons. First of all, because it reminds us almost word for word, the story of Abraham and Lot that we will have to revisit because the, the Lot story has relevance as well. I mean, the more we learn, the more we see how these stories inter- interconnect, how one story reflects light on another. But my, the point I was simply making was that Asaph has already left, which, which is why the Midrashim are, are troubled by, or if they're not troubled, they raise the question, if the guy already left, if he, he's living in a different country, so let him stay there. What, what are you starting up for? But I think the point is that within the Midrash, there's the other view, which I think is the more plausible reading, Yaakov has no choice. Yaakov really has to deal with this problem because he has, in fact, hurt his brother. He didn't, in fact, use trickery, whether even though the blessing that he gets is appropriate for Jacob and not for Esau, that's for sure. On the other hand, the very way that he took it does matter. And the fact that Esau was hurt does matter. Whether Esau is still hurt, that's the question we will deal with. 
because at the end of the day, the blessing that Yaakov takes is not really a blessing that Esau would want in the first place. Esau is not into suffering. So we're not suffering for your whole life so that someone else can get a blessing later, which is what the covenantal blessing is. But your point is well taken. I, and I agree with it completely. Thank that you. the sense you get in reading chapter 36 is different than what you get in reading the stories prior. So thank you for that comment. Okay. Anybody else? Uh, Rabbi, yes. Rabbi Silpa? Yes. Um, both in the case of Abraham and Yaakov, why is there an implied idea of uh, the land couldn't bear both of them? Is that the idea that goes beyond property and uh, uh, the uh, common strife between brethren? Is it more like, uh, um, okay, you keep the covenantal inheritance and let me go somewhere and uh, acquire property, which is not covenantal? Well, I think it has two reasons. I, I think there are two points over here. I think the, I think the issue of who shall succeed, who is, who is covenantal or not, is central to both stories. But on top of that, look, I think the Torah is making a, a different point, which is why are the shepherds of Abraham and Lot fighting? It's a big land. Okay, they both have a lot of possessions. What does it mean to say the land can't bear the two of them? And that's probably more comment about, what do you mean Aesop can't stay in the land because they have too many flocks to the land? You can have a hundred flocks in this land, big land. The fact of the matter is, it's probably more comment about human nature. That is to say, for whatever reason, why aren't people satisfied? You know, there's enough food on planet Earth to feed everybody several times over, three, three healthy meals a day. So how could it be that some people eat all kinds of fancy foods and other people are wondering where the next meal is coming from. That's a very good question. But the fact of the matter is, of course the land can, can bear them both, objectively speaking. But the Torah may be making a comment about people, about how people see themselves vis-a-vis -vis the other. Of course, we have to find a way to dwell together. And in fact, that is one of the central themes of the Chumash. You're gonna possess a land, there are a lot of different people in the land, some people you like, some people you don't like. I'm not talking about the other, the other nation. I'm talking within Israel. There are 12 tribes. Don't always get along with each other. And the Chumash is about trying to figure out a way for people to uh, be themselves on one hand and to live together on the other. So it probably is a statement about human nature. In addition, uh, it's related to the uh, nature of the, uh, of, of, of the covenant. Okay, anybody else? One more question, we can just move, continue. Yeah, the, Torah, the, Torah, the Torah certainly seems to be telling us that Yaakov is in no vacuum of information about what's been happening at home. He knows where Esav is, so he can send messages to that place. I don't think so. I, th I thought it was the other way. I think he's sending the messengers to go to Edom and they come back and say, forget it, he's coming towards you. No, no, but how does he know in the first place that Asa oh, is in Edom? Edom? in the first place, yeah, for sure. He, he seems to know that. That much he does know, right. He has some information. The Torah doesn't tell us how he knows that. I mean, it's over the course of 20 years. The Torah really didn't tell us anything about, about what Yaakov knows or doesn't know. That is true. We simply, Torah doesn't tell us. We don't know ourselves. Is Rivka alive or not? Seems like she's not alive, actually. But the Torah never said Rivka died. Never says it explicitly. Rivka died, not here anyway. Um, so it's a good. Well, it's a good it certainly point. leaves us. It certainly leaves us to ponder the possible fulfillment of her taking on the curse. 
Yes, it does. Right. She certainly said that. That's right. She certainly did. Okay, let's continue now with verse number six. So it says, Fine. Now, these messengers come back. We encountered Esau, your brother. And in fact, he's coming to meet you with 400 men. So here's the point. Why is Esau coming to meet Yaakov with 400 men? Let's start first with the number 400. The number 400 appears in his book, Breshit, three different places. It appears in the context of the covenant. Know very well that your descendants will be strangers and enslaved and abused for 400 years. That means a very long time, very long time. Then, then afterwards, when Abraham buys the field, to bury his wife, and he buys the field of Ephron, 400 shekels, it means a vast amount. And now the third time, he comes with 400 men. So first of all, it means he comes with an army. And second of all, we have to wonder about the relationship between those three 400s. Because the first is about the covenantal promise. The second is securing a symbolic acquisition in Hebron. And now I have the ace of 400 men who potentially could undo the covenant. Because after all, if Yaakov and his family are annihilated, they can hardly enter into the covenant. So Esau walks with 400 men, which for this book, is, we should take it as a, a tremendous number of people. And now we wonder why he's coming with 400 men to meet Yaakov. Does he always walk around with 400 men? Or, or only to meet Yaakov? We, 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 of course, remember, since I mentioned the book of Shmuel earlier, we, of course, remember very well that when, when, when David first flees from King Saul, the book of Shmuel says that they gravitated to David 400 men, 400 men, and they were bitter men, people with debts, people who were embittered, um, et cetera, et cetera, essentially 400 debtors, criminals, whatever, and they're a tough bunch of people, and they gravitate to David, the other person in the Bible who is read. There's Esau, who's Edom, and there's David the Admoni. That's part of David's character in the book of Shmuel. And the red there can mean many things, but one thing it certainly means is he is a, uh, he can be a, uh, a, a ruthless killer. That's for sure. So the 400 men, and we know that when Yitzchak blessed Esau, he said, you will live, on, live by the sword. He is a killer. So now he's coming to Yaakov, and the question is why? Maybe that's the way he travels in general. So let's continue. We don't know why he's coming. And now we have the next verse. Jacob was very afraid, greatly afraid, deep anxiety. What does he do? He divides his people and his, and his flocks and herds into two camps. So there are two comments to be made here. 
maybe the more than two, I'll make two. First of all, we don't know why Esav is coming and neither does Yaakov. And I'll tell you something else, we will never know because you can't know. What Esav's initial intention is, is unknown. It's a good example of simply, the reader cannot know, Yaakov doesn't know. He does prepare for the worst. And his first impulse, which I think for the Torah standpoint is not the right impulse, but the first impulse is to try to save as many as you can save. He divides his people his, and his flocks into two camps. And he said, Vayomer, he said, or he thought, if Esav comes to the one camp and attacks it, the other camp may escape. So let's first point out the obvious. We asked the question in the beginning of our study this morning, two camps. What did two camps anticipate? And over here, this is the first possibility for the two camps and not a very pleasant one. That Yaakov says, let me divide everything I have into two. And this way, okay, if Esau comes with his armies, he's a killer, and he'll encounter one of the camps and destroy it, but the other camp may escape. Now, of course, if that happens, and this is the important point over here, if that does happen, and Yaakov doesn't know what Esau plans, he suspects the worst, he thinks, presumably, that Esau is still bearing a grudge for what happened 20 years ago. And given the history of brothers in the book of Genesis and the story of brothers in general, he has what to worry about. We'll get, we'll get to this later. But I wanna make a different point about dividing into two camps. And that is, remember that Yaakov's vow, Yaakov's nether, back in chapter 28, God, if you protect me, if you care for me, I will make you my God. And the interpretation that we offered then was, I'll make you my God in the sense, not just the God of the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham, but I will make you my God. I'll do something they could never do, which is to build the house. By that, Yaakov means the inclusive structure. Everybody's included. That's Yaakov's neder. That's Yaakov's vow. That's Yaakov's mission in life to build this family in which everybody has a place. So what would it mean to say, I'm gonna divide them into two groups and one of the two groups will be destroyed. Okay, you may be able to, the remaining group may be, be able to build into a family, but you're gonna be missing half the group. So obviously the two machanot for Yaakov is hardly a satisfactory solution, apart from the other problems of losing half your people. But that's not what Yaakov promised to do. I promise to come back and to build the bayit and to lose one half the people and which half is random is hardly a good solution for Yaakov. But that's his first impulse. Save what you can. Save one machanayim. We have two machanot, I'll save one. That's his first impulse. But now we come to the next thing Yaakov does. Payoma Yaakov. Elohei avi Avraham, Elohei avi Yitzchak. So God, Jacob prays. The second, second thing Jacob does is pray. He prays to the God of Abraham and he prays to the God of Isaac, just like our, our, our Amidah. 
actually teaching a class on Tuesday nights about the Amidah. Here you have another example of praying to the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Hashem Ha'omer Eli, he uses the name Hashem, yud heh vav the eternal one who says to me, Shuv you said to me, you, you ordered me, return to your birthplace, to your homeland, and I will deal with you, etiva imach, bountifully with you. Let's first read the prayer, and we'll reflect on it. Katonti says Jacob, I know I'm unworthy of all the many kindnesses, asherosita et avdecha, that you have done for your servant. When I, when I crossed the Jordan, I, came, I left with my stick, my staff. I didn't run away with, with possessions, like Abraham's servant with the 10 camels. I left nothing. And now, look how much I have. I have become two camps. Again, a reference to the two camps. In this case, look how much I have. Look how, how blessed I've been. I have two machanot. So that's, then Jacob continues that with his petition. First he says, I'm, I'm grateful for what you've done. I know I'm not worthy. And now I petition you, God, save me, please. My brother from Esau. I'm afraid of him. Lest he smite me, mother and child alike. He'll kill everybody, not just me. I'm afraid he's going to completely destroy everything. Maybe the expression Eimah Banim reminds us of the story of Rivka, Rivka's place in getting Jacob to take the blessing that was to be given to Asa. And Yaakov now completes his prayer in the next verse, and you said, I remind you that you said, I will deal bountifully with you. And you said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea, too numerous to be counted. Now here there is a couple of very interesting questions to be asked. So let me, I mean, one question one can ask, is, of course, is that God actually, Jacob seems to be quoting what God said, but we have nothing in the Torah that suggests that God ever said such a thing. God never said, hey, Tevi, Tevi, Mach, nor did God say to Jacob, I will make your descendants as bountiful as the sand of the seashore. God did say to Jacob in chapter 28, you, your descendants will be as bountiful as the dust of the earth. God never said the sand of the seashore to Jacob. God said it to Abraham in the binding of Isaac. And God did not say, hey, Tevi, Tevi, Mach. That's Jacob's interpretation. So let's, maybe we'll deal with that. But I want to make a different point about this prayer, which is about basic a prayer as one can get. Save me from someone who's trying to kill me and all that I possess. And that is that the next verse, which is verse 14, is that night, Jacob slept there that night. And Jacob took and Jacob selects from what he has presents, a mincha, gifts for Esau, his brother. And the Torah will then specify what gifts Jacob sets aside for Esau. But what's interesting over here, and it's the only time we have this in the book of Breshit, 
In fact, I'm hard-pressed to think of another example that we have in the whole Torah. It's the only time I can think of, and certainly in this book, where there's no answer. Every other place where someone is praying, God responds. God responds. Abraham prays with God in, about Sodom. How could you destroy all of Sodom? Maybe the 50 righteous, maybe the 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Each time God responds. Isaac prays for, for a child, for a child for Rebecca. God responds. God responds from one prayers. Abraham petitions God about the covenant, about a child. God, God responds. But here, there's no response. And what is more basic than the prayer, Hatzileni, save me, please, for my brother. He wants to kill me, not just me. He'll kill all of us. And after all, you, you, you gave me assurances. You did tell me to return to the land. You did say you would protect me. God does say that. I will bring you back, right? And here, Jacob is very worried, understandably, and there's no response. So here we have to keep this in mind, why in this case, or how do we interpret God's failure to respond in, to Jacob's heartfelt prayer of chapter 32, that's the question. So let me just read a little bit more and then I'll stop and take uh, comments and questions. Now the Torah details the, the animals that Jacob uh, sends. So in 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, 20 ram, 30 milch camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 she-asses, and 10 he-asses. So what are these numbers over here? Let's see. So the first verse has 220 goats and 220 ewes and rams. And then verse number 15, number 16, 70, 80, is 110. 220, 220, and 110. So I'll mention something that uh, one of my cousins mentioned, said to me many years ago, a mathematician. And I don't know if I ever mentioned this before. So the number 220 was a very interesting number. The Greeks knew of the number 220. Does anybody know what's special about 220? Anybody? The number 220 is what they called a, uh, a, a friendly number. Friendly number. Um, a friendly number means if you take the number 220 and you take all the numbers that divide into 220, not 220 itself, but every number beginning with one, and you add them all up, I forget what it comes, I think it's 284. If you take the number 284 and you take all the various components of 284, it adds up to 220. That's called, the, those are friendly numbers. So the Greeks apparently had a customer they would send to the, they would, they would send one would send 220 and the other one would send 284. And for a long time, those are the only friendly numbers that were known, at least as far as we can tell, 
Then some some kid actually some Italian some kid in Italy discovered two other friendly numbers in the in the thousands one thousand. Now with a computer that generated a lot of them. The, the, many, many friendly numbers, gigantic numbers. No human could ever do this. So I, so my cousin once suggested to me that maybe the 220 over here is reminding us that maybe the Chumash is actually, you know, playing with this idea of a friendly number. Um, who knows? But it is an interesting point. In any event, he sends these gifts to Asa. And in the next verse, Vaitain Biyala Vodav Eder Eder Vadol, Okay, so he instructs them to have a revach, a distance between the different flocks. Perhaps that appears that appears to be more than it is. Don't don't bring them all together. Send them in separate in separate in separate droves. And he says, if Rulifanai, you cross before me. And we will see either this week or next that the verb to cross or to pass over is a central verb in this entire story. If Rulafanai and Revach Tosimu, and then he gives more instructions. By Yitzavatarishon Raymar, he instructs the first group. Who are you? Where are you going? And you should say the following words. You should say in verse number 19, was that verse? So tell them again the language, your servant Jacob, he's coming, he's coming afterwards. He's sending the gift first. And he so he commands this group and the second group, and all of the groups. This is what you have to say when you, when, when, when you meet him. And finally, and then I'll stop the comments and questions, Vamartem, in verse number 21, Tell him, Jacob, your servant, comes afterwards. That is an interesting verse for us because it, it tells us what Yaakov was thinking. He's right behind us. And there are three different terms. All three terms involve the word of face. He, for he said, they translate propitiate. Kapara is atonement. Or to wipe clean. So the sense over here is, I will meet him. I want to meet him. I'm saying the, the mincha. Remember, the word mincha means a gift. But mincha in the Torah is one of the main sacrifices. It's a sacrificial word. Kapara is gained often through sacrifice. So I want to send the gift first to, to purify myself before him to make myself uh, worthy to be before him. Through this mincha, then I will see his face. The Torah speaks about, about seeing God, about three times a year going to the sacred place to stand before God. That expression we have, right? 
the holy mountain, right? The place in which God sees and is seen. To go up to the temple to bring the sacrifices there three times a year. So the idea of seeing God's face is requesting forgiveness, right? You speak about the, the, the festivals are a time of forgiveness. By the way, this is an important point about our holidays, all of them. Every holy day on the Jewish calendar, with the exception of one, is a day of atonement, not just Yom Kippur. Every single festival, every single Yom Tov has an atonement theme to it. In fact, how do we start the Musaf of every festival? Because of our sins, we were exiled. Every single festival has an atonement theme to it, very simply because one of the sacrifices brought on every single festival is Sa'iri Zimur Khatat, is a sin offering. There's only one holy day where there's no sin offering, and that is Shabbos. Shabbat has no sin offering. Atonement is not a Shabbat theme, but every other festival has a is a is a uh, atonement theme, and it probably is connected to going up three times a year to encounter God's face. And I want to encounter Ulai Yisar Panai. Perhaps God will show me favor. Yisar Panai, Yisar Panai, again, bestow God's favor. So Yaakov makes it about as clear as one can make it. He sees the visiting Esav as a kind of encounter with the sacred in the sense that the encounter with God has to do with finding favor in God's eyes. Those are the two of the three priestly blessings. So it's pretty clear to me that what Yaakov feels he needs to do over here is to get back in the good graces of Esau, not just from a practical standpoint, because Esau may kill him. He is afraid of that, and that's something to worry about. But on the other hand, he requires kapara. He requires some kind of atonement on his part because he did hurt Esau, because Esau was terribly hurt when his beloved father didn't give him the blessing that Esau thought he was going to get. So Yaakov, I think, is, apart from the fact of making it right with Esau, and of course, he's afraid of Esau, but he, he, has to, he has to achieve atonement over here. Let me stop here for a moment and take comments or questions, and then we'll continue, and next week we will continue with this, one of the great stories of the Bible, obviously. Yes? Um, I, have, I just had a thought. I know we always connect when similar things come up, but is it possible just to say that the numbers in the Torah sometimes are symbolic, like the number 70 means completeness or seven, and the number 400 means a lot. Right. So that when they say 400 years, it, we say that they were only there for 210, but 400. Sure, 100%. And the number 40 means a generation. All the judges in the book of Judges judge for 40 years. That sounds highly coincidental. Exactly. Right. So, so when another, he said when David right. had 400 men, I don't know if you really had 400. It just meant, you know, all the losers, a lot of people gravitated toward David who had nothing better to do, but figured they'd throw their lot in with him. Right, right, for sure. People are people, look, 
at that point, that in terms of the most wanted list, King David is number one on the list. Saul spends most of his time chasing after David, not right. chasing after the enemies of the Jewish people. He spends most of his time chasing after David, which is a major problem in terms of Saul's kingship and the way he runs the country. He has armies, 3,000 men searching for David. So the point is, for sure, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's Dafka 400. I'm, I'm saying, as you say, it, it means a very big number. Which right. is the point. He has what to be afraid of. This, this guy is a killer. And he's, he has, he's a phenomenally wealthy guy. He owns a country. Doesn't own a little company or even a big company. He owns a country. He travels with an army. And we know he's he's day outside. He's, he, he's a hunter, which the Torah looks down upon. And he said, I'm going to kill my brother. So, so therefore, he has what to worry about. The question is, can we figure out what Asaph's initial intention was? I'm not sure we can figure that out. But at the end of the day, Asaph doesn't seem to want to kill Jacob at all. We will, we'll, we'll discuss this in the coming weeks. This is a very central point. Uh, yeah, anybody else? Thank you for that. Anybody else for coming? I have a question. Can I go ahead? I'm not uh, hearing, yes? Does Pagash and Fagah have the same connotation? With Gosh, Pagash, and Pagah? Uh huh. Uh, they're probably related. I mean, they're probably related. It's. I think Pagah has more of a a violent side to it than with Gosh. But Yifgabo Vayomot is found often in the Book of Shmuel. With Goa Bis somebody means means often to stab them, to kill them, etc. That appears several times. With Gosh is more to meet. I think that's more neutral. Okay. Thank you. You, meet, you meet somebody. Uh, but with Goa, typically, and I could say with Gosh can also be by chance. You can meet someone by chance, whereas with Goa is not by chance. With Goa is something. Now it comes with prayer is also called Pigia, but it's a kind of a real, very, I wouldn't call it a violent entreaty of God, but a very powerful entreaty. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a, in modern Hebrew, a terrorist attack is called a, uh, a, uh, a uh, Pigua. A pigua in, in, in modern Hebrew means a terrorist attack, a pigua. So it has that violent side to it. There's no question about it, of course. Um, okay, let's see if we I'd like to, anybody uh, else. Yes. Yeah, if I could make first one, one comment supporting your your uh, description of the Yaakov having to do this when he says, it means up until now. So this he's telling it that you're first on, Esau is first on his list. The first action that he does is dealing with Asav. Right. That's a good point, actually. That is the first thing he does to clear the way. I mean, it is true. I mean, that's the, the fact of the matter is that it's part of, I think, of the larger question, which is, you know, what makes Yaakov worthy of, he's, he's going to assume his place alongside Abraham and Yitzchak covenantal. And we are wondering, I and mean, anybody who reads the Chumash, I think, would just, you know, in, with, without apologetics, has got to say that Yaakov's behavior to this point is very little heroic about it. He, he runs away from home and he runs away from love. I mean, he manipulates the blessing with, his, with the father's blessing and he manipulates Lavan's flocks. I'm not saying he wasn't cheated by Lavan. What I'm saying is that I think the, the reader is thinking, I certainly I has always thought, what is it about Yaakov that's so special? And my point will, is, and we'll see in next week, I hope, that the Chumash has exactly the same question. 
we're not the first to ask the question. The Torah itself asks this question, and the Torah has a very interesting answer to this question for what makes Yaakov special. In any event, um, so fine. So Yaakov is going to, yes, the first thing he's going to do is confront Esau. Uh, but also, on the other hand, he sends the mincha first. Mincha, of course, is a sacrificial term. The mincha crossed before him. Notice that the word panim keeps appearing over and over again. Maybe we'll have some time to think about that as well. Jacob is sleeping in Once again, the machane in the camp. So now Jacob gets up. He gets up in the middle of the night. He takes his two wives, his two servants, they're called here, Zopa and, and Bila, his 11 children, these are his 11 sons, and he crosses Ma'avar Yabok. Notice again that the word La'avar appears over and over again. He goes across the, 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 the Yabok Ford, right? The Ford of the Yabok. He took them and he crossed over the brook, the stream. And he sent across all of his possessions. All of his possessions. The word Lavar. So who's crossing over? The two wives, the two Shvachot, 11 children. He has all his possessions. Right? Everybody is crossing over. And therefore, the next verse is very strange. And Jacob was left, remained alone. And a man wrestled with Jacob, fought with Jacob until dawn. So the wrestling with Jacob until dawn, something that I did want to really get deeply into next week, obviously one of, if not the most significant story of the book of Genesis, birth of Israel actually on that night. But let's reflect a moment on the previous uh, thought, which is why is Jacob left alone? How do we understand Jacob being left alone? He takes everybody, he, caught, he brings them across the Everybody's crossing. The wives are crossing, the shvachot are crossing, the kids are crossing, the possessions are crossing. Everybody seems to cross except Jacob. Jacob doesn't cross. Or if he did cross, he went back. Sounds like he doesn't actually cross. He, 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 he enables them to cross. The cross the Maharaja boat, but Jacob does not cross. How do we understand this? And um, so the, first of all, within the general Midrashic world, Midrashic tradition, there is a thought that Jacob actually does cross, but he goes back. Why did Jacob go back? Why did Jacob go back? I, I, let me just say, I don't think that's the best reading over here. I think the better reading is he took them and it, he, he enabled them to cross, but he never crossed in the first place. Let's, just, let's take the other possibility that he actually crossed himself and goes back. So the Gemara makes the comment, famous Gemara, he went back because he had forgotten something. 
He had forgotten kopachim ketanim, small jars. He had forgotten the small jars. He had left something behind. He said he took everything, but there's something he forgot to take, some jars, whatever. And he goes back to get those pachim ketanim. He goes back to get the, the small jars. What is the idea of going back to get the small jars? What does that mean? Of course, it lends itself to two different possibilities, I think. One is not positive. You know, the, the Rashbam here, Rashi's grandson, who commentary strives to get what he calls the pshat. He's not that concerned about what the rabbinic tradition is in terms of his comment, even though he wrote, of course, a commentary on the Talmud, a great commentary on the Talmud. But when it comes to the Torah, he thinks that you have to take the Torah at face value what it says. And he, he claims that Jacob crossed back because Jacob was afraid and was going to run away. Jacob was going to run away until confronted by this mysterious ish. I must say, with all due respect, that's not my sense at all in the Chumash. I don't think that's a plausible interpretation at all. That he's actually running away. But um, that's what the Rashbam suggests. So Pachim Ketanim, he's going back for the, for the Rashbam. I mean, in that that vein of thought would, have, would be something negative about it. He went back, some, some, he got some trivial thing and he went back to get it. That is one way to read it. I don't think Rationalized that's what the going tradition back. means. Though. I think the big tradition means something different, which is that he went back to get small jars. It's the opposite. It means in crossing back into the land, he wants to make sure that everything comes with him. It's what, it's what Moshe says to Paro. In, in, when he says to Paro, we want to go and serve God in the, in, in, in the desert for three days. And Paro first says, you can take the men, not the women. You can take the old and not the young, whatever it is. And Moshe says to him at the end, we're taking everything, all the people and all the possessions. We're not sure what, what we need. We want to bring everything with us. And you're going to also give us some, some, some animals to sacrifice. Because the point is to appear before God, Moshe says, with everything that we have. The small vessels, from one perspective, they're small. From another perspective, they're not necessarily so small. First of all, they're very small things that have great meaning to us. We want to stand before God with, with everything that we are. And perhaps that's what the Medrash is saying about Yaakov. He, went, he forgot something. He wants to make sure when he crosses over into the promised land, was when he crosses over, it is the promised land, that he comes with who Jacob is and who the family is, all of us, which is not just our own personalities, but also everything that we possess. It's our house, it's our possessions, it's everything. So that's one way to read it. And he actually went back. The other way to read it, of course, is that it's not that he goes back, is that he never crossed in the first place, which I think is actually closer to the plain meaning and then it raises the question, why doesn't he cross over? Everybody else crosses over, and they have no problem crossing over. Everybody, the wives, the, 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 the shvachot, the children, everything. Just Jacob is left alone by Ivoter Yaakov Ivado. So I would suggest that the reason Jacob actually can cross over is for a simple reason. The crossing over for the Chumash means you cross over the Mavar Yabo, you're crossing over into the land. 
when you cross into the land, that's the covenantal land. That's the place where Jacob had his dream. That's, that's Beit El. For everybody else, the crossing over is not difficult because they have no issues. For them, crossing over the Mabayabok is like crossing any Nacham, any stream of water. It's just for Jacob, because it's not clear at all that anybody except Jacob understands the nature of the covenant. In fact, it's fairly clear that no one else does understand it. Nor does anybody else have any issues with Esau. The issues are Jacob's issues. And therefore, only Jacob has the struggle. Jacob is left alone because only Jacob understands what this really means to cross over. And of course, where he has to cross is the foot of the Yabok. And here the Torah plays with the word Yabok in verse number 25, to wrestle or to struggle. Jacob can't cross the Mavar Yabok until Vayeovek, because only Jacob has this issue. Only Jacob both understands the covenant and secondly, understands there are obstacles to being, being worthy of, 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 of being covenantal. Nothing in his past suggests he is worthy of this great blessing, this great covenant. So for Jacob is Vayeovek Yaakov He is truly left alone. And I would add here, as introduction to next week, he is truly left alone from two perspectives. Number one, it is clear that only Jacob understands the nature of this crossing over. That only Jacob understands the nature of the covenant. It's clear that he has not transmitted this to anybody else. It's clear from the conversation there with Rachel and Leah in the field about his dream. And they say to him, listen, my, our fathers ripped us off. Do whatever your God tells you to do. They have no understanding of this covenant. He, isn't, he hasn't shared that. But not only is he alone from that perspective, he's alone from a different perspective. Because back in the, towards the beginning of this chapter, Jacob turned to God and said, save me, please, from my brother. And we have no answer. We have the absolute silence of God. So Jacob is alone from every perspective. His God hasn't responded to him on one hand, nor does anybody else, all the people around him, have the foggiest clue about what it would mean to cross over. They cross over very simply. It's only Jacob that can't cross over until Vayeovek. So next week, we're going to, we have to understand what, what allows Jacob to cross over. What is the nature of this confrontation with this very mysterious ish? I want to deal with that next week, both to look at very carefully these next few verses, but also to try to frame it more broadly within the larger context of the book of Breshit. So that's the plan for next week. Um, okay, I've got a minute or so to take uh, comments or questions. You can always send me emails at dsilber at Um does anybody want to it make just, a comment yeah, or it question? Just, it, just, it just occurred to me that, it, that this actually is, is in a way it foreshadows Mo, Moshe's return yeah. um, at God's instruction to Egypt and, and his being interrupted um, in, a, in that mysterious scene by the, by the angel who tries to kill him on the way That's back. True. Many Jacob. others have drawn that parallel. Okay. Rabbi, it's also yes. thinking of Moshe that he names his son that you know he was a stranger there. He's always the stranger. It's like the existential loner. 
And I think that's also seen with Yaakov. He's alone, no matter if he's in a crowd, he's alone in for certain sure. ways. No, 100%, for sure. And it's, what's, what's funny about it is that he is, and he always remains that way. On the other hand, his mission in life, which he does, is to, is to create this family which every single person finds a place, which is interesting, to build as he called the Bayat. He succeeds. He actually, the first one to actually constructs this family where every person in the family is part of his family. It's not one or the other. It's not like either Yishmael or Yitzchak, it's only one. It's not Esau or Yaakov, only one covenant. They're both included. But it is certainly true that till the very end, there's always a sense of Yaakov. And as we can study through the book, we'll see this. There's a sense that Yaakov knows things that no one else knows. For whatever reason, he doesn't share it. He tries to share it to some extent. And to some extent, there are things that are very difficult to share. You can say the words, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people actually understand. How do you communicate to the other person? That's something that's a very deep question. And you know, very often it's not through words, it's it's through other things, but it's but it's to the extent that we can communicate what we really want to say, who we really are. Uh, I think for Yaakov, till the very end, it's a piece of Yaakov who tries to communicate for sure. And there are things that remain with him, I think, that are, that are not communicated. Uh, but we'll see that. That's, I think, a very uh, uh, important point. And yes, Yaakov and Moshe have much in common. Um, so we'll, anyway, we will continue with this next week. Thank you all for joining. We're dealing with I mean, some of the great stories of the Bible here. And they are also foundational stories for, for other stories as well. So looking forward to continuing. And again, if anybody has comments or questions, dsilber at grisha.org. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Um, so thank you, Rabbi Silver, for a wonderful class and to everyone who joined us here today on Zoom, on Facebook, on Drisha Live. Thank you for being part of our learning community. It's very wonderful. As Rabbi Silver mentioned, he will be continuing his class on the sitter on Tuesday night. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I know that the last series was fantastic. The recordings are available on our website and on our Facebook page. If they are not on the live page, they have been moved to our library. So we tend to have things that are just uh, a little more current still on the live page. And if you don't see it there, it's already been archived, but it's still accessible, still free, and still in order of the, the last available class. And in addition to Rabbi Silver's class starting on Tuesday night, Rabbinit Leah Sarna and Rabbinit Sarah Wilkenfeld are going to be teaching a joint class starting tomorrow night on the 21st century work Shabbat balance. And I really look forward to it. They are each fantastic individually and together they are quite a force. So if you've never enjoyed one of their co-taught courses, I highly recommend giving it a go. You can get more information and register on our website. And thank you. I know that there was one other question, so I will give Rabbi Silver the option to answer that if he wants. The other right. I, I just have a quick question. Does crossing the stream have any relation to crossing Yamsu? I would say definitely yes. I think in general, crossing over, whether it's crossing the Jordan in the book of Yoshua, crossing the waters of Yamsuf, crossing the Yabok, 
I would think that crossing over in general is a theme that runs through the Bible. And I think it is to, yeah, Yamsuf, you know, when we cross the other side of Yamsuf, there's a new story. When Egypt is out of the picture and now the next challenge is living in the desert, walking through the desert, confronting the harsh elements of the desert, confronting the unknown. And the same thing is true of the Jordan. Moving in now, suddenly you're not walking in a desert, you're creating your own society, your own community, and all of those challenges. I would say, yes, I think that crossing over waters has a symbolic significance of moving to a different place with a new set of responsibilities, challenges. Yes, I would say 100% agree. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. See everyone next week or sooner. <laughs>